For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome back to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with my co-host and producer, Mike Madison. I'm thrilled to have Colleen Cowles on the show today. She's the author of the new book, War on Us, How the War on Drugs and Myths About Addiction Have Created a War on All of Us. Colleen's perspective is unique and I think really needed because when we talk about the war on drugs, people tend to immediately just think about people who are using drugs. And they, they might think... Well, if it's harming them, you know, they brought it on themselves. Now, I don't agree with that uh, kind of response, but it is a common sentiment. Um, But I think Colleen does wonderfully is show how the war on drugs doesn't just affect people who use drugs. It has actually changed the landscape of the world for all of us, even those of us who don't think we're even close to that war or drug use or addiction. So Colleen's going to walk us through some of those effects and give us um, a vision for a better future and how you can be part of that. So Colleen, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here, Christina. So what led you to write this book? Well, it definitely wasn't one of those things that was on the the bucket list for life. (laughs) Sometimes a combination of personal and professional experiences just takes life in in different directions. And and, uh, that was, was definitely the case with this book. Uh, as an attorney, I really thought I had a at least a, a basic understanding of, of drug policy. Um, but then, like so many in the country today, uh, addiction and the war on drugs found my family. Um, I have a, a son who uh, has an autoimmune disease that causes intense chronic pain. It's diagnosed and treated now, but 20 years ago, doctors couldn't figure out what was causing his pain. Uh, so hmm. eventually he began to self-medicate, developed a substance use disorder. He was arrested with seven Percocet in his, in his pocket. And the saga that followed literally for years really opened my eyes to, to what people typically never see. So my legal background combined with the personal experience really gave me an opportunity to see a behind-the-scenes look. And the more I learned... Uh, and the more I researched and interviewed experts and worked with other families, the more I was really shocked by what was actually happening in the application mm-hmm. of the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's an important thing because a lot of people think um, about the intent versus outcome. And, you know, mm-hmm. if the intent is help, then outcome, you know, is going to be the best that we can get because we're intending to help people. Um, yeah. So a lot of people, particularly when they're thinking about drugs currently, everything that's front and center in people's mind is the terrible statistics of overdose and, and addiction. Um, and a lot of people would say we, ha- we have to have the war on drugs because otherwise it's just going to get worse. We can't stop now. Otherwise, you know, we're going to, if we think overdose is bad now, if we think addiction's bad now, it's just going to be, you know, astronomically worse if we end this war. What would you say to that? Well, I think it's really easy to assume that. And I think that, that most of us at one point in our life believe that. Uh, when I, and, and when you look at the statistics, it is, it is scary. We lose a, a person to overdose every seven minutes. When I looked at those, those statistics, 
Um, it's the equivalent of a 9-11 attack every two weeks. We're losing mm. 6,000 people every two weeks. So, so it's, it's a legitimate question. Um, and addiction is, is real and it's heartbreaking. And I think that's part of the reason that this has become such an emotional issue because we're seeing parents bury their kids and grandparents mm-hmm. are raising their grandkids and, and we're seeing lives lived in, in desperation. Um, but it, what shocked me when I started to research is that as we've escalated the war on drugs, we've actually escalated the overdose and, and addiction rates. So when I started looking at why would that happen, what's gone so terribly wrong, I started looking at the, the actual science and medicine behind addiction, and that really opened my eyes to, to, what's, to what's happening. Um, we've got such inconsistency um, with the way that we're treating addiction. Uh, according to our own government, we have medications now that will treat addiction that actually cut overdose rates in half. I mean, we've got people that have struggled with addiction for, for decades, and now they're returning to jobs and being able to support their families and, and being taxpaying citizens. Um, but I think there's a really, it's really counterintuitive. We treat addiction with drugs. <laughs> I mean, that, mm-hmm. that's a, yeah. that is a little bit hard to, to accept. But scientifically and medically, it's, it's indisputable. Um, mm-hmm. Look at all of the, the health organizations in the world. The, the World Health Organization lists the medications used to treat addiction as essential medicines. The mm-hmm. National Institute on Drug Abuse, the CDC, um, and the World Health Organization call these medications the gold standard for effective treatment. Um, but the problem is that less than 5% of everyone struggling with substance use disorder has access to these medications. And actually, there's people that are on those medications doing well and are arrested because they missed an appointment for probation or any of a number of things that can put people behind bars. Mm -hmm. And they actually take away the medications. So we've got medications that can, that that are the the best statistical treatment for substance use disorder. And then we have a system by the same government that, that has stated that these medications are, are so effective but that same government prohibits them us from using them. Mm. So it's it's really a, a kind of a um, a crazy system, and, and kind of explains why it's, it's it hasn't worked well. Um, and then when I looked at those medications and started thinking about drug policy, if we've got medications that will successfully treat addiction, then the whole theory that addiction is a moral failing and that we should punish someone. And if we punish them enough, they'll stop. That really doesn't make any sense because these medications don't, don't solve a, a moral failing, mm-hmm. but they do successfully treat addiction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I started looking at that, it, re- it really was kind of a mismatch as far as the way we treat addiction um, scientifically and what we're mandating as far as our whole criminal, criminal justice system. It just didn't, yeah. Yeah, I think that word mismatch is a perfect way to uh to say what's happening is we have this medical response that works and yet we're still pursuing a punitive response that doesn't um and we just we have to 
to jump ship on that and say, that was the wrong approach. And we now know what works, not perfectly, but works the best of anything out there. Um, and put all of our eggs in that basket instead of continuing yeah. something that has, you know, completely failed. So uh, when I met you, one of the most interesting things uh, about our conversation to me was um, how the war on drugs, how it, addiction, but addiction in the world of the war on drugs, which is a very different experience for families than addiction if it was handled as a, a health issue under the care of doctors completely instead of the criminal justice system would be experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of your background is that you are the former CEO of Cowell's Legal Systems, which is a um, legal software company where you trained attorneys nationwide and you ultimately sold that company. Um, but you uh, applied your expertise now in an online course that's called Protecting Your Assets when addiction finds your family. So a lot of your your legal work as an attorney has been in um, estate planning. And I just thought this was so fascinating. Talk us through what you're seeing with clients related to estate planning and addiction. Well, it was, it was amazing to me when I was working with clients and seeing assets going in the wrong direction as people were approaching retirement. And I maybe wouldn't have asked the questions had we not had personal experience with war on drugs and the costs and, and, uh, uh, and not only of treatment, of, but also of, of uh, keeping kids from being destroyed by, by the war on drugs. But I was astounded at the number of parents that ended up basically losing their retirement. Uh, I, I looked at this from a taxpayer standpoint as well as a, as a personal standpoint in working with families and realizing that not only were parents having to to watch their their children disintegrate, but instead of potentially spending dollars if they had dollars to spend on helping them to get treatment, instead they were spending it on fines and fees and and uh, attorneys to keep them out of a dysfunctional criminal justice system that would destroy them for life. Hmm. Um, because of a, a pill in a pocket, a child can end up having a felony that will keep them from being able to rent uh, an apartment for life. So I was seeing parents having to pull out their own retirement funds to um, to help kids purchase housing because otherwise they would be homeless even if they ended up in recovery and were doing well as far as the addiction, they, they'd end up homeless because they, they the, the felon label would keep them from, from renting, it would keep them from uh, career opportunities. Um, so just economically, it was it's, it's destroying people. So not just um, the cost of treatment, which many parents and family members are laying out tens of thousands of dollars for drug treatment, and often people go multiple times and maybe still don't enter recovery, but just the amount of people of, of fees and fines they're racking up in the criminal justice system also. So on the one side, trying to actually get them help for the the issue, for the actual issue, while also trying to keep them out of this other mismatched approach of the criminal justice system, which can just stack thousands and thousands of dollars of fees and fines on people related to drug charges. So you were, I just don't think most people think about that unless it's happening to them, that this is actually affecting people's retirement. It's affecting their, their whole financial structure for families as they're trying oh, yeah, to and, and help. Parents are ending up with health problems themselves. There's a, a huge mm. instance of PTSD in parents who are dealing with this. Interesting. Uh, it's also a lot of parents have put 
enormous of money amounts of money into treatment mm-hmm. and the child may be doing and, and when I say child you know maybe a teenager it also might be an adult uh, child mm-hmm. but um, it, but when people go through treatment even if they're successful because of the glut that we have in our criminal justice system and we're, we're arresting over 1.6 million people every year uh, so those files, a lot of times, don't get to the top of a prosecutor's file for a long period of time. So that person may be doing well in recovery, and then the file comes to the top of the pile, they're prosecuted, and end up in, in, in jail, even if it's a, for a short period of time, and sometimes it's not, sometimes it can be a long period of time, but even a short period of time can really jeopardize that recovery. So it's it's really a kick in the teeth to these parents who put the money into treatment and then see it undone by the criminal justice system. Hmm. And that happens all the time. Uh, or when, when children find recovery through the medications. And then, again, the file comes to the top of the, the pile and the probation officer who is uh, appointed says, oh, no, you can't be on those medications and if you take those medications, it's going to be deemed a probation violation, and we will put you in jail, at which point um, that you'll go through withdrawal from the medications that were treating the health issue that got you arrested and, and got you on probation in the first place. Wow. So it really is kind of, it's, it's craziness. Wow. So it really is, you're seeing kind of the, it's negatively impacting the health, even of people who are doing well, who have found early recovery. It's also negatively affecting the health of their family members who are under incredible stress as they're trying to keep their loved one alive. They're trying to keep them out of the criminal justice system. They're trying to get them uh, hopefully into long-term recovery while also watching their savings be destroyed. Um, even just the, the mental and physical health of, of the whole ecosystem behind a person struggling with addiction currently is just, uh, that's, wow. I don't yeah. think we think about those kind of um, the, the all told cost of this approach to all the facets of who people are and how um, they operate. So I think most people, at least at, at one time, believe that, you know, our drug policy protects us, but um you also talk about not just that it jeopardizes our health, but that it also jeopardizes um, our safety. What do you mean by that? Well, the, the, there's uh, everything from police resources. I mean, when we've got police focusing on, on over 1.6 million drug arrests, um, and 1.4 million of those are for possession only, um, we've got 38% of murders unsolved, 62% of rapes unsolved, 87% of burglaries go unsolved. Um, and the, the, the typical person is now being impacted by risk of SWAT rates. I mean, swatting is now a verb because if someone wants to make a phone call, um, they can end up creating a... Um, it, Doors being broken down. Um, SWAT rates have increased by 15,000% since the late 1970s. So, so SWAT, SWAT raids being? thousand raids annually. Yeah. And SWAT raids being law enforcement who are, you know, maybe they got a tip that somebody at a house is using or selling drugs of some sort. And so the SWAT team comes in a, 
in a in a raid style. This isn't like somebody being pulled over and arrested for you know possession, right. but actually kind of a, a proactive um, breaking into the house where this is happening. And, and unfortunately, we've got children that are present in fourteen to twenty five percent of of those raids. Um, there's about ten thousand family pets that are killed annually, and I always thought, Christina, that the SWAT raids must be be restricted to the situations where there just wasn't any other choice because that's that's a pretty severe thing to do to come in with guns and knock people's doors down um in instance on uh, that i was personally uh um, involved with uh someone had uh been arrested with three pills in their pocket uh the, there was no no charge made and and the next day that person decided to go into treatment um, nothing happened for 15 months, and at at that point, the person was actually working at a treatment center, um, being a good uh, good influence on on other uh, young men coming into the program. Um, but the file got to the top of of the prosecutor's pile. They decided to uh, to prosecute, and at that point, um, the the address had been changed. So all they would have had to have done to find this individual was to check a change of address. But instead, they a SWAT raid went into the apartment that was now occupied by a family who didn't know this individual at all. Um, but they they uh, uh, knocked on the door and uh, um, you know, instituted a SWAT raid just because they didn't check the address to try to send a letter to the person who used to live there. So it's, uh, it really is frightening. We, we are all at risk. Um, it doesn't have to be that you have any connection with drugs whatsoever. Um, you know, you're, you are, uh, I think all of us are at risk of that. Uh, and then there's the cartel violence. I mean, we've got innocent victims killed. Uh, and this, this crosses our border, too. We've had more drug war deaths in Mexico than in Iraq and Afghanistan wars combined. Hmm. And the reason for that violence is that the cartel earnings, cartels earn from 19 to $29 billion every year. So they are going to protect those profits, but the profits are created by the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, if we, if we converted to a public health system and we legalized but regulated drugs, our government would be the providers and we'd have clean drugs and we wouldn't be financing cartels, which, by the way, spend some of that, those billions of dollars um, funding terrorism. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's, uh, it, it, it just, it, it has, it has grown so large that it, it is impacting really every aspect of, of our, of our society at this point. So one of the things that we have addressed in um, here in Mississippi recently is asset forfeiture. Um, so we've reformed our asset law, forfeiture laws. Um, some we people like me would love to see us reform them even more. Um, talk about asset forfeiture. Explain first of all what it is, and second, one of the things that your book discusses, chapter eighteen, is that the U.S. government seizes more assets from its own citizens than all reported burglaries of its citizens combined. What is going on there? Because that's astounding um, and sounds very disturbing. Yeah, that that statistic um, really made me shake my head, too. And and I I double checked that one several times because it really is hard to believe. But but these are actual statistics. And 
Mississippi isn't alone. I think that that, uh, we are starting to see some reforms on civil asset forfeiture. Uh, What it is is the government's ability to seize assets from citizens um, if the asset is believed to have been involved in a crime. Now, that's a lot different than a charge against an individual, because in, in still in most jurisdictions uh, and on the federal level, seizures don't require a conviction. It doesn't even require charges to be filed. So as long as an asset is suspected of being involved in a crime, then the asset can be seized, and, uh, and it's very difficult to get those assets back because in some jurisdictions you actually have to prove that the asset was not involved in a crime. So that, that's really hard to prove. How do you prove right. something didn't happen? Right, right. Um, <laughs> but that statistic that, that, uh, that I've got in the book, um, it's a 2017 statistic that's the, the most recent um, statistic mm-hmm. available. It's not that things have improved a lot. Um, but in 2017, the government seized $8.2 billion in assets, and victims of burglary lost $3.4 billion. So that's 2.4 times oh, as many assets that our government took from citizens as burglars took. And it's one of those things that I think that uh, until I started really looking into this, if it doesn't happen to you, it's really easy to just not mm-hmm. be aware. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyone who's driving cross country and has cash, um, there have been people who have had their retirement assets seized because they happened to have uh, have it in in uh, in cash and and were were you know just the nature of having cash on you well that must be drug money um there yeah they, are, that just uh, happened there i feel like who've lost their homes because their child was in the front yard and suspected of using drugs um now that we do have a um, there's a supreme court case that has restricted that to a certain extent so again we are Starting to see some reforms, but uh, but it's something that everyone should be aware of because you know we we are we are all at at risk. Uh, I feel like that was just um, I was just watching a, a news story on this kind of an unfolding um, of somebody that was flying out of country and had taken mm-hmm. a lot of their savings with them in cash to go. I don't know if they were moving to another country. I don't remember exactly what happened. But so they're not doing anything illegal at all. They just happened to be traveling with a lot of cash and it was seized. Uh, when they yeah. left by customs saying there's no way that you could have that you could have this amount of cash unless you had just sold a bunch of drugs or were engaged in drug trafficking or something illegal must have been mm-hmm. doing something illegal and they seized it i mean and and i i just i don't think most americans realize you don't have to be arrested for the government to seize your stuff they can seize your money your car your home any anything that they want to seize Without arresting you, without proving that um, something happened, you know, that, that you even committed a crime. So with people, um, you know, we, we say you have to be, you know, proven guilty. You're innocent until proven guilty. But actually with, with your assets, your assets are guilty until they are proven innocent. Uh, like you said, they don't have to prove that you used it. They can just say we suspect that this is, you know, engaged in some sort of illegal activity. Um and then you, the burden is on you to prove that it wasn't, which, as you said, is, wow, that's how, how do you prove that, you know, something didn't happen that didn't happen? 
Um, that, well, you know, and there's also just no keep in mind that, that because you haven't personally been charged with a crime, there is no access to a public defender, mm-hmm. and they've taken all your money. Right. So now you so have to also pay. it's very difficult yeah. to, to have any kind of legal defense. Yeah. And even if you do, I mean, you know, I've heard um, here people say, well, you know, they seized, you know, $300. You know, I just cashed my paycheck from work, and it was $300. So, you know, I had two joints in my car, you know, whatever it is. And so they, they seized the cash saying that that I probably got that cash from selling the other joints I probably had before they caught me. And uh, so now but for me to hire an attorney to get my $300 back is going to cost me $600. So Correct. why would I do that? Because then I'm I've lost I've still lost three hundred dollars in that mm-hmm. transaction. It's really stressful, um, and so you, you, there's all sorts of money being, um, you know, forfeited that is not it's not worth the person's money to 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 get right. it back. <laughs> uh, exactly. So they just lose it. Um, and for a lot of people, I mean, we know that people are more likely to have uh, criminal justice um, uh, to be caught. Um, I, I, I personally don't think it has to do with who's actually committing more crimes, but just who's being caught and prosecuted for those crimes. If you're lower income, um, Mm -hmm. and you know, so you have even less ability to be able to afford, you know, where are you going to generate $600 for an attorney out of nowhere? Um, and, and you may have never been charged for anything. Uh, they, they may never have arrested you at all. Even, you know, with the two joints, you may, you may not have been arrested. They may have just chose to confiscate your, um, property instead of actually arresting you, which is um, d- deeply troubling for people who care about freedom and the ability to have due process for, you know, that, you know, you can't just, you can't take my stuff just because you say you think it must have been used in something that there's no proof that, yeah, you know, it, it, it was ever. It is frightening. And it also is, is concerning because the incentives are so wrong. Uh, because in, in most, and in, in, it, it varies with jurisdiction, but in in the majority of jurisdictions, the police departments can actually retain part of those forfeited assets to add to their, their budget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it gives incentive to go after the low-level drug possession cases instead of the cases that that are really putting people uh, at risk on, mm-hmm. you know, the, the violent crimes. Yeah, and, and then we've also, because of all of the the um, publicity that the addiction overdose epidemic has has brought, there's a lot of grants that are uh, are available. So we we have so much more focus on with the police on those types of crimes for economic reasons more than than anything else. Mm-hmm. And then that that in turn is really making it more difficult for for police. Um, right now, I was I was. Um, amazed to read that that suicides have um, have taken more police lives than than line of duty deaths mm. um, mm-hmm. and a lot of that is tied to war on drugs because they feel like they're at at war with with the citizens and citizens are are less apt to help to solve other crime because they're afraid of of police because of of uh, um, Fear of of arrest or or of um, seizure of assets. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not helping police either. So what would you say to parents who are 
worried, you know, um, you know, uh, I don't know if we change our drug policy, you know, how's that going to affect my kids? And uh, maybe maybe we just keep doing what we're doing. Maybe it will scare them out of not and not ever trying drugs in the first place. And then this all will, you know, never affect me. Uh, what would you say to worried parents about changing how we approach drugs? One of my favorite quotes is, is from Kofi Annan, the former Secretary General of the United Nations. He said, we all want to protect our families from the potential harm of drugs. But if our children do develop a drug problem, surely we will want them cared for as patients in need of treatment and not branded as criminals. And I think that kind of says it all. Um, now, if, if we look at, at the, the numbers right now, is what we're doing protecting our kids? You know, if our teenager wants drugs, do any of us really think they can't get them? Right. You know, but if they're if they're looking for drugs, who's going to be the source? Do we want it to be the drug dealer or do we want it to to be um, a, a regulated um, you know, government um, type of, of source? And if they develop an issue, do we want them to be able to come forward and ask for help? Or hide in the shadows because they're afraid that they're going to end up in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the statistics too uh, are a little bit scary. The the um, we've got twenty three percent of young adults in the United States now arrested by the age of twenty three. So your child wow. today is wow. three times more likely to be arrested than previous generations. And there have been studies done. Um, I think it was the University of Michigan did a study. Uh, that showed that someone arrested as a young adult will have uh, a decrease in income um, lifelong, and there's a 3.5% uh, less likelihood of, of being married in the future. Because time in jail, even for a short time, just changes identities. You know, it's kind of mm. a, a criminal university. Um, it makes people afraid of, of law enforcement. Um, and yeah. we've also got a huge issue of suicide um, in in uh, county jails, hmm. um, and those suicides, twenty seven percent of those suicides occur from two to fourteen days after arrest and before any type of conviction. Hmm. You know, so when yeah. you when you just, I think that it's it's easy sometimes we hear the the statistics and the you know we talk about mass incarceration and and people going to jail and being arrested, but if you really step back and think about what it is to to have someone handcuff you, um, put you up against a police car, lock you in a cage, basically, um, for maybe possessing um, a, a drug, maybe being um, being just suspected of of, uh, of a drug, um, it's it, it's really pretty frightening. I mean, one in five people sitting in jail hasn't been convicted. They're just sitting there because they can't afford bail or because they mm-hmm. haven't been charged yet. Until you're charged, you can't pay bail to get out because you don't know what bail is until you're charged. Wow. Um, yeah. So when, when we think about protecting our kids, I mean, really one in, you know, three times more likely to, to be arrested and to go through that, that trauma. Um, and we know now that trauma and isolation uh, it highly escalates the the um, the risk of addiction. Right, we're like creating more of the problem instead of yeah. the solution. So let's talk about solutions. Uh, what would you see as the solutions, the best solution options to change 
what we're doing that have the biggest impact positively? Well, absolutely converting addiction from a criminal matter to public health. And that's, that really is the only solution, um, because by legalizing and regulating the drug supply, we're putting the drug cartels out of business, and we're allowing people to step up and say, I need help. Um, so that really ultimately is the, the only solution. Um, but in the meantime, it's also important to keep people alive. Uh, mm-hmm. So carrying, carrying Narcan, which is just a nasal spray that will save a life if someone uh, if someone overdoses, um, I would like to see that made uh, into an over-the-counter drug. It, it, it can't hurt anyone, and it would, it would save a lot of lives. Um, just trying to get that, um, I, I went to uh, a, a Walgreens a few years ago um, because I, I wanted to, you know, I'm speaking out about this, and I wanted to, to live what I'm speaking, uh, so I carry Narcan with me. Um, thankfully, I haven't needed to use it. Um, but I went to the, the Walgreens and, um, and asked um, for, um, for Narcan. And at that time, um, I, it was the first time that I've ever really personally felt the stigma of, of, uh, of drugs, um, mm. you know, of, of, of the attitudes of people um, regarding addiction. I mean, the, the look that, that I got and the, the treatment there. Ultimately, they said, well, you know, we don't have it. Um, you know, if you want to order it, we'll see if we can get it. And I walked out into the parking lot, and a young man followed me. And he said, ma'am, if you, if you want Narcan, I have some, and I, I can share that with you. And so I ended up having a 45-minute conversation with him, um, you know, about his background. And, and he did ultimately share Narcan with me until I could get some. Um, but it broke my heart. I mean, I, I felt like I was doing a drug deal in a parking lot to get a medication that can save a life. Mm-hmm. And, and I've followed that young man since. And knowing that our son is doing well at this point because we were able to take some steps and advocate for him, the gentleman in the parking lot didn't have that family support. And he is now in prison. Wow. Um, it, he, his background was no different than our son's. You know, it was strictly just a, a difference in in, uh, in support systems mm. and and uh, an opportunity. And, wow. You know, kind of broke my heart. Yeah. Um, so what but, what would you uh, tell people that want to make a difference on this issue? How would you tell them? What would you encourage them to do? Well, I think uh, I think a lot of it is um, is offering opportunity. Um, if you're an employer. Um, look past the criminal record. Um, some of those people can be the best employees and the most dedicated and loyal employees that you will ever have. Um, and you do have to look at the at the uh, situation. I mean, if they're in active use, that can be a, an issue. Um, but there are so many people out there that would make great employees if they just were given a chance. Um, the same thing with landlords as far as, as giving opportunities for housing. Um, if if there's a family member, um, one of the greatest harms that, that I've seen um, has been parents and, and other support systems being told that advocating for a child who uh, has an addiction issue is somehow harmful. And we've got this dysfunctional system, and then the people that would advocate for them and kind of put checks on the system are told, no, you shouldn't be involved and you should kick them to the curb and let them hit bottom. Well, bottom is death in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if we treat, you know, again, and just emotionally looking at 
the way we treat other people, if we look at this as a health issue that is treatable, if we had a family member who had diabetes or cancer, we wouldn't be kicking them out and saying, hey, find your own help and, and, uh, um, you know, and, and you, you just have to suffer enough until you want, until you want help. Um, mm-hmm. So just the, the compassion. Yeah. Um, and then voting strategically, because and this is not a partisan issue. Um, it, the um, it, both sides of you know both major political parties have have done some good things, and but mm-hmm. largely have been wrong on this issue. So anytime we're looking at a at a policy or a politician, if we ask ourselves, will this position further stigmatize and punish those with substance use disorder? Or will it put addiction under the umbrella of public health rather than criminal law? That's the only way we can consistently judge those those policies. Uh, and for for any of us, you know, educating ourselves and, and and understanding the real effects of the current policy, not only on those with addiction, but but on all of us, um, you know, on all of our health care, on all of our um, tax dollars of mm-hmm. of, uh, of society in general. Um, and uh, and just standing up for um, for decency, compassion, and uh, and constitutional due process uh, yeah. goes a goes a long way. And I think once once more people are are understanding and open minded and really looking at the fact that we do have medical solutions to these issues, uh, if we're only willing to accept them and, and to apply them. Um, the the good news is that we can make a difference, and there are solutions. Um, and because the drug policy has been so harmful, that also gives us incredible opportunity for making change and really solving a lot of these really major problems. Amen. If you'd like to get in touch with Colleen, you can email her at Colleen at WarOnUs.com. That's two L's and two E's, Colleen. You can buy her book, War on Us, on Amazon. And you can also get free sample chapters of the book if you go to WarOnUs.com. If you're benefiting from our podcast, would you head on over to iTunes and leave us a positive review? And then can you think of one person who would benefit from it? and share it with them. Uh, We end the drug war one changed mind at a time, and that means one invitation at a time. Colleen is part of the movement that we're also part of to end this. Colleen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.